Increment 17, Hebrews 20.20, we see Jesus. I'm happy to be continuing this series today, once again co-laboring with Jim McClory, who is at the other end of the auditorium here at the Alamo. I trust that you're all complying with the government guidelines that seem to be rooted in true science as well as common sense. And it's a matter of love for the brethren that we obey them. And it seems that in this time, it's absolutely absolutely compliant with what the Lord would have for us, as we noted from Isaiah 26 and verse 20. God has a great purpose in this particular time in our nation, in the world's history, actually. And I hope that you'll see some of that unfold a little bit today. Today ain't no fool's day. Today is a day for the wise to apply their hearts to wisdom and to number our days and to use each day as an opportunity to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's to that end, Father, that we ask that you will bless the going forth of the word of truth today and the word of grace We thank you for a faithful congregation and to those who may be added to that congregation today from across this country, Canada, and many other places. And we thank you for this opportunity in Jesus' name. Amen. Tini ton angalon. To which of the angels... Picture Yahweh, the Lord of Lords, holding a council with the angels. In the Hebrew text of Job 1.6, for example, we're told that the sons of God, called Beniha Elohim, came to present themselves before Yahweh, the Lord. The Greek text, a version or versions of which the Hebrews writer used, he did not use the Hebrew text, but a Greek text or several of them, translates and thus interprets this passage as the sons of God being the angels of God. In other words, the Hebrew or Masoretic text has Beniha Elohim, meaning the sons of God or the sons of Elohim, but the Hebrews writer uses the Greek text, which interprets that phrase as the angels of God, hoi angeloi. So Yahweh has a council with the angels of God. He apparently has many of these. I don't know if he has daily meetings as our president is with his council in this present crisis, but they are apparently rather frequent. The writer, who is a pastor theologian, I call him the PT, he is of the Hellenistic wing of the Jewish Christians. In Acts 6.1, we know that seven deacons were selected, including Stephen, in order to meet a complaint that was being had by the Hellenistic Jews in the body of Christ there in Jerusalem. The Hellenistic wing was the Greek-speaking wing of Jews, and the writer to the Hebrews is a pastor theologian of that Hellenistic Jewish-Christian segment. Now, once again, he either used the Greek text or several Greek texts of the Old Testament scriptures. There are many of them available to us now. So he read the sons of God as angels. Consequently, and this has consequence to Hebrews, he translated Psalm 8.5, which in the Greek text is 8.6, you made him a little lower than the angels. Rather than the Hebrew text rendering, which reads a little lower than the gods, or even a little lower or a little less than God. Now, it makes no sense that God would make Jesus a little less than God. 
because Jesus was still God, fully divine, when he took on human blood and flesh. And he was still God all through the days of his flesh, even when he strongly cried out to God with tears in Hebrews 5, 7. Crying out to the one who was able to deliver him from death and he was heard in that he reverently viewed his father. Although he was son, Hebrews 5, 8, Hebrews 1, 2, that is, the eternal Son of God. He learned obedience through suffering. Suffering in a body of blood and flesh. Hebrews 2.10 and 2.14. Through that meritorious obedience, and through that efficacious suffering and death, Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, became the source of age-abiding salvation to those who obey him. That's how Hebrews 5.9 puts it, and for a reason. Now, it's true that Jesus said, the Father is greater than I, John 14.28. But this is not because Jesus was less than God his Father in terms of substance or essence. Because he also said, I and the Father are one, John 10.30. Jesus said, the Father is greater than I, and we dealt with this in a previous series called the Doctrine of the Mystery. Jesus said, the Father is greater than I, because the Father had added to the person of his eternal Son a human nature and a human body for the purpose of obedience to the Father. It was an obedience that would take him to perfection through suffering and death. And that is why in Hebrews 10, 5 through 7, with an allusion and an adaptation of Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, you'll begin to pick up on the fact that the Psalms are extraordinarily powerful and important and significant in Hebrews. His obedience is referred to by an allusion and an adaptation of Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. The Greek text is Psalm 39, 7 to 8, where it says, Coming into the world, the Son said, You prepared a body for me, and see, I have come to do your will, O God. Now, if we were to bring Romans into this, and we are in our commentary of Hebrews, bringing our previous series to bear on this series, if we were to bring Romans into this with regard to Jesus' obedience, we might recall that, quote, through the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Romans 5.19. That speaks of Jesus' obedient act of dying by which, according to Romans 5.18, the justification of life came to all. If we were to bring Philippians on board, we might recall that though he existed consubstantially and eternally as God, he came to be in the likeness of a regular and ordinary human man. Took the vocation, as it were, of a slave. And was obedient to the extent of death by crucifixion. We might also recollect that this deepest of humiliations resulted in the supreme exaltation of Jesus and the expectation that every knee will genuflect and every tongue willingly speak the confession that the Lord, that is Yahweh, 
is Jesus, that is, Yeshua, to the glory of God the Father. So Philippians 2, 6 through 11 involves what are known as an exaltation text, what is known as an exaltation text. We find these also throughout the Psalms. We find them in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 21 to 23, 1 Corinthians 15, 25 and following. However, the PT's purpose in Hebrews, this pastor theologian, evidently from the Hellenistic or Greek-speaking Jewish-Christian wing of the church, as it were. His purpose is distinct in Hebrews. And so he writes in a different manner than other scripture writers because he's achieving a specific aim. Moreover, when he speaks in a way that seems to contradict the security inherent in Paul, for example, in Hebrews 6, 4 through 8, a very touchy subject for many Christians because it is extremely difficult to get to the true intent of the author there. But he ends up after speaking in that controversial tone, he says, even though we speak this way, I'm persuaded of better things about you and about what salvation is and the things that accompany salvation. So he speaks in a way that is necessary to his purpose. His purpose is overwhelmingly what is called paranetic or exhortational, hortatory. The hortatory or exhortation part of Hebrew Hebrews is prominent over the exposition even. So concurrent with this pastor's purpose, he speaks in a different way than Paul and speaks in a different way than John. And so it's also because he has a specific purpose in mind and that purpose is the introduction of a series of insights which only the mature are ready for. The writer of Hebrews is most certainly not in disagreement with other expressions of faith that are integral to early Christian tradition, especially those traditions found in other writers of the New Testament scriptures. All right, so far today, I've been saying that the PT considered the sons of God of the Hebrew text of Job 1.6, for example, to be the angels of God. And this is important. And it's in agreement with the Greek text. He also took Elohim in Psalm 8.5, or the Greek text being 8.6, also to be angels. Now, there's a little different situation in John's gospel where Jesus refers to gods in Psalm 86 and says, does not the scripture say you are gods? But we're currently concerned with angels as they present themselves to the Lord, to Yahweh, to give accounts to them, to him rather, In convocations or conferences, these are had on certain days. Job 2.1, for example, speaks of another day when the angels of God appeared before God. And in both of these convocations, 1.6 and then on another day in 2.1, Ho Diabolos shows up, the slanderer, the devil. In fact, he was said to come to be among them. It does not explicitly say that the devil was an angel here, only that he entered the council and was among the angels. It may be that he sneaked in, slithered in, as we would say, like those of whom Jude warned his readers. 
Jude warned his readers in Jude 1.4 of certain ungodly men who had come in by stealth, turning the grace of our God into promiscuity and denying our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. They sneaked in. Maybe Hodiablos sneaked in to the angelic convocation. Or maybe he was welcome, because the Lord speaks to him, frankly. In fact, the Lord is said to have spoken to Hodiablos, and he said, where have you come from? Where have you been? What you've been doing? Like the other angels, he has to give an account in seven. And then he says, have you considered my servant Job in Job 1.8? So we may assume that the Lord spoke to the angels and that they spoke to him in these convocations. We may also assume that the Lord spoke to the angels by name. We've considered the name Gabriel, for example, as the name of an angelic messenger who is charged with the most important breaking news items such as the birth of Jesus and such as an announcement of the prophetic 70 weeks of years that was spoken of by Daniel the prophet, Daniel 9, 24 to 27. Perhaps just as prominent is the archangel named Michael who is said to stand with Israel in Daniel 12.1, he is pictured in some literature at the time as being a kind of agent through whom the Lord would enact his purposes. Again, in Daniel 12.1, he is said to stand watch for Israel. In Jude 1.9, speaking of Jude, He is pictured disputing with the devil in debate over Moses' body. Michael is also portrayed as a general of an army of angels who defeated the devil and his legions in Revelation 12, casting them out. In Isaiah 14, 12, there is a reference to Yahweh likening the king of Tyre in Isaiah's time, to an evidently angelic being named Son of the Dawn. Sometimes it's translated Lucifer. I don't think that's such a good translation for our times because of how the character of Lucifer has been caricatured in literature and on TV and in drama. But this Son of the Dawn who through obedience became known as the old snake, was also called by other unflattering names in the scripture. Now he may have been called the son of the morning. He may have been called son of the dawn. But to him, Yahweh, God the Father, the Most High God, never said, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Coming right from the initial exordium of Hebrews 1, 1 to 4, the PT asks in 1, 5, to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? This is a rhetorical question, and it demands the answer to no angel (laughs) did God ever say, you are my son, meaning you are my unique son. Today I have begotten you. This was only said to God's unique son, to Jesus, the son of God, who passed through the heavens and to whom the father said, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now this kicks off what we call a katina 
C-A-T-E-N-A, or a closely linked series of verses that consist of quotations from the Old Testament scriptures. The writer uses these ingeniously. This barrage of quotations is also called a florigelium, F-L-O-R-I-G-E-L-I-U-M. It's like a bouquet of flowers, many flowers, or a cascade of many waters. This device is customary in Hellenistic Jewish synagogue homilies. The first of these verses is Psalm 2-7. Now, many interpreters, and I'm reading a few, have wrestled with the question, what does today mean in today I have begotten you? Some have answered that this today is the day of eternity, a timeless day of eternity, and that God the Father announces this when he eternally generates the Son. This answer accords well with the doctrine of the divinity of the Son, which I heartily believe, and with the idea that the Father eternally generates the Son of his own substance and consubstantial with him. I agree heartily with that. This answer puts more emphasis, however, on protology than eschatology. This argument is also used apologetically to prove or defend the divinity of the Son and his consubstantiality with the Father, which was a very strong point made by the Council of Nicaea and explicitly defended against Arius by Athanasius and others. And we're thankful for that. However, the PT in Hebrews is more interested in eschatology here. It's no doubt true that God the Father, and this is I'm quoting from Bernard Lonergan's excellent volume on the triune God, God the Father neither made his own and only Son out of pre-existing matter, nor created him out of nothing, but from eternity generates him out of his own substance as consubstantial with himself. This I believe with all my heart. It may even be true that the Father eternally speaks, for the Word is the eternal Word. So the Father eternally speaks when he eternally generates the Son, and that he says eternally, and in the day that is eternity, you are my Son. Today I have begotten you. But in Jesus Christ, protology and eschatology are one. They're united. He said, I am the first. Protos, and the last, eschatos. He is the eternally spoken word of the Father, the word that the Father speaks, the word that remains in the Father, and the Father in him. But this declaration from Psalm 2-7, as it's applied here, seems rather to speak of something that the Father said to the Son when the Son had become much better than the angels and when he had inherited a name so much more excellent than theirs. That is, when he inherited that name through an exploit, through a mission that he accomplished, through a death that he had suffered. This declaration by the father to his son was most likely made after the son had been made a little lower than the angels for a little while for the purpose of suffering and for the purpose of tasting death for all. And that's not a purpose for a little while. That little while was for a purpose that's eternal and salvific. And we could argue universally salvific. It was for the purpose of tasting death for all 
in the course of that suffering in order to bring many sons to glory. Please note that. To bring many sons to glory. A strand we'll probably pick up in the near future. I agree with Harold Attridge, A-T-T-R-I-D-G-E, in his excursus on sonship in Hebrews, in his Hebrews commentary, pages 54 and 55. Therein he wrote that the, quote, basic interest of the writer is, quote, to establish the significance of Christ for the present and future of his addressees by indicating the superiority of the son to any other agent of God's purposes. I tend to like that and agree with it. That Christ is superior to any other agent of God's purposes is in perfect accord with the son being appointed the heir of all things. Moreover, this stands in perfect agreement with the mystery of God's will to savingly sum up all things in Christ in Ephesians 1.10. In fact, in Ephesians 3.11, Paul also writes of God's purpose of the ages, which he made in the Messiah, Christ Jesus our Lord. On top of that, in 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6, the man Christ Jesus is proclaimed to be the only mediator between God and humanity and that he gave his life as a ransom for all. Not just for many. For all. Hebrews will take up the motif of this mediatorship, this motif, in revealing Jesus to be the mediator of the new and the better covenant. Hebrews 8.6, Hebrews 9.15, Hebrews 12.24. Now the Christian community of our own time, what about us? I think it needs an extra insight to carry us forward just as the recipients of Hebrews required the extra insight regarding Jesus Christ's priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. They needed that extra insight to keep them incentivized to run faith's race with perseverance all the way to the finish line, to obtain the victor's crown, 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. The crown of life, James 1.12. The crown of righteousness, 2 Timothy 4.8. And special reigning status, 2 Timothy 2.12. As Christ's royal and priestly companions, Hebrews 3.14. Hebrews 10.21. Now when I say an extra insight or an extraordinary Insight. I'm not speaking of some new revelation apart from the scriptures. I'm speaking of a powerful illumination of the scriptures in which the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ and the reality of the universal impact of his death, burial, and resurrection is appropriated by Christians. This affords a vision of Jesus Christ in his universally salvific splendor. Question is, is the Christian community of our time ready for this? Some are resisting. Some are acting as if they need to be taught basic doctrine all over again. Some are acting as if they don't even know the basics. They still quote things like God works in mysterious ways and I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian and God helps them that helps themselves. That's the summary of their biblical knowledge, so-called. Some are even acting like they so-called lost their salvation. 
This is because without the fuller vision of Jesus Christ in his full reality, in fact, the vision of Jesus Christ as reality, God's people are perishing. God's people are perishing. Isaiah 29, 18. Hosea 4, 6. 1 Corinthians 10, 18. 118 make that perishing because of the lack of a vision in which Jesus Christ is seen in his all saving splendor. So great salvation to neglect this extra insight, this illumination of the scriptures is to neglect our so great salvation. This present time in history is an opportunity for millions to reassess their priorities and to rethink the values that they cherish. Some will come out of their homes at the end of this semi-quarantine having realized that before this quarantine, they were doing something that they weren't really designed for and weren't really happy with at all. They weren't designed for what they were doing by the grace of God. The God of all grace designed them for something different and something else. Maybe even something they knew they were designed for, but were resisting. Some will come forth from this several weeks or maybe longer, with a renewed sense of purpose, a sense that had perhaps been fading. Perhaps they were doing something they were designed to do, but were getting weary in it. Maybe they were preachers and they got weary of preaching and fighting for every insight and fighting after every insight. Maybe that's the case. Some will come out of their confinement without their former baggage. Without weights that had been holding them down. Without sins and addictions that had been holding them back. Many may come out of this so-called quarantine with a fixed gaze on Jesus. That they had lost previous to what is known as COVID-19. This disease has a limit. The plague in Israel under David's watch took 70,000 people's lives. First Chronicles 21.14 tells us about it. But then God stopped it by ordering an angel to sheath his sword, which he was brandishing toward Jerusalem in First Chronicles 21, 27. Now, 70,000 people dying. And apparently they were all men in this case because of the problem of David's lack of momentary trust in God. He took a census or an assessment of Israel and all the military men around because of the adversaries that were facing Israel. And he stopped trusting the Lord and said, I better gather up our militarily available men. Now, the plague killed 70,000 men. First Chronicles 21, 14. But then it stopped. Now, 70,000 per capita in Israel at the time would be a lot of people in America at our time. But it stopped. God stopped it. He ordered an angel to sheath his brandished sword. And the plague stopped. First Chronicles 21, 27. 
This plague, I don't know if we'd really call it that, this virus, will pass. But while its threat remains, God is accomplishing his purpose in the interior of the lives and hearts and minds of millions of people. Millions of people that he had not reached before this time. The son of righteousness will arise, says Malachi 4.2. S-U-N. But it means, of course, the son, Christ, who arises and Christ shines on us. The son of righteousness will arise and his rays will burn off this disease. He will heal this land. And we should pray for this. In fact, we've issued a brief, very brief prayer to this end for to tell us thy phalanx to pray. The son of righteousness will arise And he'll heal this land. And we should pray that he does so. But he will do so only when many will have old-fashioned word, but true, repented. Reassess their values. Reassess their priorities. The reassessment of priorities and putting them right, putting our values in the right place, will save more lives in the future than science can save, medicine can save. And God knows this. We repent when we have come to see the value of priorities as God arranges them. We live in a time when you almost see it happening in front of our eyes. Evil is called good. Good is called evil. Bitter is called sweet. Sweet is called bitter. People who are motivated by bitter hatred are blinded to reality. They're bitterly hating leaders in our country. Some people bitterly hate our president. Others bitterly hate party leaders. Bitter hatred is something from which we must repent, put off the old man with all that stuff in Ephesians 4, 30 to 31. Bitter hatred, envy, jealousy, slander, maligning, backbiting, gossip, all this stuff. A real disease. When we will have repented, having come to see the value of the priorities being arranged in God's order, when we learn to focus primarily on unseen things that are eternal and not on evanescent things and transient things and what everybody else is doing or posting. This plague will pass. And before it does, man may reach his limit and come to his wit's end. But as someone has once said, man's extremity is God's opportunity. My prayer is that though I adhere to true science, though I adhere to government guidance, as we should as believers, and pastors who irresponsibly call their flocks together to embrace 
and kiss each other and trust God that they're going to be okay are fools. And it is April Fool's Day for them. I'm not condemning. I'm just saying let's not adopt such a ridiculous and self-destructive policy that involves no faith and no love for the brethren at all. Man's extremity is definitely God's opportunity. More importantly, the scripture itself says, quote, when they reeled and staggered like drunken men and came to their wit's end, then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. Psalm 107, 26 and 27. Now, we should certainly respect the true science of our time and even admire the scientific advancements that are happening in the medical community now. And of course, of course, pray for those on the front lines who are treating this disease. And we also should pray for the president and the vice president at all times, at all times. And for all those in authority at all times, don't let bitter hatred, partisanship, and blame casting and scapegoating prevent you from walking in your priesthood as an effective prayer warrior. It's not helpful to watch hate night TV, not late night. It's not helpful to watch people who bitterly criticize, attack, and malign our leaders, our political leaders. If anything, those attacks are from the Satan, the adversary, the slanderer. Bitter partisanship. There has been a stasis, a polarization, and a fragmentation in the highest levels of our government and in throughout our population. This is what has displeased God. This stasis, as the Greek calls it, this polarized standoff, this mutual hatred. And it's not practiced by all people on either side, left or right or whatever you want to call it. But it is something that has deeply displeased the Lord. As it deeply displeases him when there is such bitter partisanship among the body of Christ. That they all may be one as we are one wasn't just the Lord fooling around. It wasn't just an April Fool's prayer. We should certainly respect the science, the true science of our time. And we should certainly obey at this time, especially the restrictions of our governmental leaders that they've placed before us for our own health and well-being, for the well-being of the nation. But science... And human governments have their limits. Some tests that come to our nation and to our world may bring all of the human resources that are brought to bear on such a thing to their wit's end. My prayer is that when this plague is lifted, when this disease is ended, that it will be to the thanksgiving of many to the God of all grace, that he may be glorified, that thanksgiving given by many, especially those who petitioned him, will redound to the glory of God. And that's not to say that God did not use 
scientists and scientific advancements and use the cautionary restrictions that he has given through the leaders that he is allowed to rule this nation at this time. But it is to say that we recognized the ultimate one who is our healer, the ultimate one who is, who sends his word to heal them, and the one who intervenes when we come to our wit's end. So that when this is all over, we will not say we healed our land. We will say the God of all grace healed our land and opened up opportunities for glorious new insights regarding his son to those in his church in this world. Insights that reveal him as in control of all things, as guiding all things by the word of his power, as giving grace, as desiring that none should perish, but that all should come to a repentance. This God, our Savior, is not willing that any should perish. In fact, his will is that all would be saved and not only be saved, but to come to the extraordinary knowledge of the truth, a truth that's embodied in Jesus. And what the church knows now doesn't carry them to the place of spiritual maturity and to the crown of life and to the crown of righteousness. What the church knows now makes them stall so that what they think a good service is, is when they feel good about the songs they sing or the songs that someone performs or the worship so-called that they engage in what's going to carry the church forward to maturity and make the church a power for good and a power for life in this world and in this nation is an extraordinary wonderful glorious insight of Jesus as reality, as the reality of the eternal God of all grace, the God who is love, as the reality of what true humanity is, as the reality of all creation and what it should be and what it will be when it's released from its slavery to corruption. We're dancing in the moonlight of a fabulous insight here. And we can tap it in Hebrews. Son of righteousness. Son of righteousness, arise. And awaken us from our sleep. Raise us up from the death. That is carnal death. And that is lack of awareness. And that is ignorance. So that Christ may shine on us, shine on us with the splendor of his full glory. And that we may see Jesus who appeared once at the juncture of the ages to put away sin. Jesus, as the son of God. Who not only made purification for sins, but who arose from the dead, was elevated through the heavens, passed through the heavens, sat down at the right side of the majesty on high. Jesus, the son of God, who passed through the heavens and who appears in heaven for us, who makes intercession for us to save us to the uttermost. And who is to appear again with salvation. Like the sun which rises with life-giving healing in its wings. Its rays shines on the good and the evil. Shines on the righteous and the unrighteous, just as the rain that God sends falls on the good and the evil and the righteous and the unrighteous. We see now. With the lesser light that rules the night. May we see soon. 
with the greater light that rules the day of God. Father, we thank you today for your son. We pray that this message will go forth and find root in many hearts and that you'll awaken even people in our own church or we call it the Tetelestai phalanx who don't quite prioritize the word of God like they used to, who spend hours and hours perhaps thinking of other things and communicating on a horizontal level. May you wake us all up, Father. And like Noah on Noah's ark, look through the window that goes heavenward. Look unto Jesus, the author and perfecter. And Father, I pray that you will give believers assurance that you will provide for their needs in this time of economic challenge. That those in our churches, our our assembly rather, our ministry, our extended families, Friends, we'll come out of this present challenge with a provision of your grace so that ultimately we lose nothing. I pray for churches across this land who are truly preaching the word of God, truly preaching the grace of God, that they will stay afloat through this time and return with a greater emphasis on the greater David, the greater son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We present to you afresh then our souls as we commit our souls to a faithful creator in this time of crisis. We commit our spirit to you, Father. We give our hearts to you. We desire to be taught by you. We desire to emerge from this crisis with a greater, stronger, concentrated focus on Jesus, your son. Thank you for this time. And thank you for allowing us to continue with the word so that we may continue in the word. In Jesus' name, we thank you. Amen.